Well, it is good to be back, and um, I'd like to ask you to join with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have given to us in drawing us from darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of the Son that you love. Lord, we're not worthy <clears throat> to speak with you and uh, to call you Father, but your grace has been overwhelming to us and your Son. Father, I would ask that you would grant greater grace to us to understand your word, not so much just cognitively, Father, but but that we might experience the power of it through your grace and that we might, uh, as we walk in light of it, find there to be a, a joy and a delight that the world cannot match. Father, I pray that in the preaching of this word, you would uh, gather your people together around this truth that we might live in a way that displays your beauty and in that find our greatest joy. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's no surprise to you that sermons are at least intended to change, uh, to change your life, at least incrementally. Um, the, uh, this, is, this sermon's no different, hopefully, uh, except that I'm sermonizing on a sermon. So as we look at Matthew chapter 5, it's really the sermon, the first recorded sermon of Jesus in, in this gospel. And, and he's beginning uh, his preaching, if you will. It's really 5, 6, and 7. It's one long sermon. Now, we believe it's probably a, a summary of a longer sermon because if you just read through the sermon, it will only take you 10 or 12 minutes. Uh, but there's summary truths that Matthew is recording for us. And uh, it, it's a grand teaching. The ethic is very high. It, it's, it's overwhelming when you read it exciting. Um, Augustine said it sets the perfect standard of the Christian life. I mean, more has been written about the Sermon on the Mount than probably any piece of Scripture. So it's a, it's a daunting passage to preach upon. But one thing it will do, it will destroy an anemic, superficial faith. So, I mean, it will just make, just it'll destroy it and try to replace it with something that's vital and full and, and very delightful. And I pray that will be the case. It's really going to kind of set life on its head for you. It, it, that's why we say living in an upside-down kingdom. It, it's reversing the world's values. Remember as a kid, I, I actually st- stood on my head for a while against a tree, and I wanted to see what life looked like upside-down. I think I did hear my father say, to my mother, it's like, what is wrong with that kid? Are you sure he's mine? I think is what he asked. And, 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 but if you've ever done it as a kid, everything is upside down. It, it, it's very hard to make sense of life upside down, but, but this sermon is going to do that to your faith. It's going it's to cause you to live in an upside down kingdom. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew, and we'll look at starting in chapter 4, verse 23, And I'm just going to read through the third verse of chapter 5. He says this, Matthew records, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease, every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed, by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. 
and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just remind you of where we have been over the the past four chapters. We took a break in the summer. So in the first four chapters, we saw in Matthew, he's he's trying very diligently to let you know that Jesus is a new type of king and kingdom. That Jesus is a unique king that is now on the scene. And you know how he did this. If you were to fly back over with me, chapter 1, he says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. So he, he roots his lineage with Abraham. Why? Well, because God made promises to Abraham for the world. And, and those promises now are in Christ. That Jesus is the son of Abraham. Those promises pass through. Jesus is true Israelite. The promises of God are now made to Jesus. But then secondly, in the second half of chapter 1, he speaks about Jesus being the son of God. And if you remember, Matthew records this miraculous virgin birth by the power of the Spirit, no father. So he's linking Jesus as the son of God and the son of man, the son of Abraham. Now listen, in chapter 2, you would expect some glorious reception for such a king. But what do we find? Well, the Jews ignore him. Uh, The wise men rightly worship him, pagan Gentiles from the east. And then, of course, Herod tries to kill him. Now, this king, uh, kings always had messengers, and so he had a messenger as well. John the Baptist announcing the coming of Christ and his kingdom. And so he announces this kingdom, and of course, by calling people to repent. Then what does Jesus do? He inaugurates his ministry. He begins his ministry by baptism. At baptism in chapter 3, God speaks from the heavens and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He confirms the ministry of the son. Well, every king in battle goes out first. Jesus does that, goes into the desert and fights Satan in the temptation, just like the first Adam, mind you. But this Adam prevails by faith, joyful obedience to the Father. He comes back and begins proclaiming now. And by the way, when he prevails over Satan, he is revealing that he is a fit king. He is a worthy king. And he is a representative of all humanity now as the second Adam who prevailed over the dark one. And then we have immediately following this, Jesus begin to preach. And he's preaching about this kingdom that is now coming. And he begins calling people into this kingdom by calling disciples, forming a new Israel. And then, of course, he confirms this kingship and kingdom by the miracles that he just read, the miracles of power and healing and cleansing, establishing himself, this kingdom is real and this kingdom is now. Not yet complete, but now in reality. So this is what Matthew's trying to do, establish for us Jesus is a new king with a new kingdom. But, but there's something else about this king. He has a new teaching, and he has a greater teaching. His teaching will be revolutionary. Now, you know, when you look back through the pages of the Old Testament, <clears throat> many teachers and preachers, but one stands above them all, and that is, of course, uh, Moses. That Moses received the law, and, and of course, gave the law to the people. He gathered the people around the law, 
wrote the first five books. And, and Matthew is going to be drawing some parallels between Jesus and Moses. Not just does Matthew have five discourses and Moses had five tablets of the law, but, but you're going to see parallels that they both were hunted in their infancy. They both led out of Egypt. They both spent time in the desert. And they both went up on the mountain. But here's the difference. Moses went up on the mountain to receive a law. Jesus went up to the mountain to give a law. But his law is different. His law in these Beatitudes are not marked by commands and imperatives that demand perfect obedience. He gives a law that starts with grace and blessings, that invite us into the grace of God. And the law that he's going to give is so profound that it is inverted. It's upside down to what the world will teach us. It's an upside down kingdom that we are called to live in. I mean, think about it. Blessed are those who mourn. Seems, it seems intrinsically contradictory. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when men revile your name. Give without expectation of return. If you're struck on the cheek, then turn the other also. I mean, th- these things are, th- they seem contrary to life. But that's the new teaching that he gives us for this new kingdom. But one other thing about what Matthew's doing here is he's introducing that we're going to be a new people. You know, in the Old Testament, the word of God was given to gather a people around God's word that they would be different, they would be holy, they would be unique, they would display the glory of God to all the nations so that the nations would see Israel as a light and come and seek and find God. Well, Jesus is establishing this new law with a new people, gathering a people around the word. But a word of caution here, this teaching has Many have attempted to live it in their own strength. And they have failed miserably, leading many people to think it can't be done. You cannot live the Sermon on the Mount. Many scholars will tell you, you can't do it. It's a high ethic. It's a bar. You'll never make it, but you ought to try. Now, of course, that seems to run contrary to Jesus. In Matthew 7, at the very end of the sermon, he says, all those who hear and obey will be like a house built upon the rock. The expectation is we will walk in light of this. And can you imagine the profound nature of this church walking in light of this sermon? Remember, you have to, it presupposes the gospel because Matthew is giving it to disciples, those who have been born again. You cannot do this apart from God regenerating your soul, taking out a heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh. You cannot do it. It will lead to despair, but... Those who have been born again walk in light of it. It will lead to delight as he gathers us together. Remember, this doesn't make you a Christian. Doing this doesn't make you a Christian, but it marks you as a Christian. So this idea of Matthew saying, here's a new king announcing a new kingdom. He gives a new teaching for the kingdom. And then he invites us as new members to live out the dictates, the etiquette, the norms of a new kingdom. That's what the sermon's about. And so as we go through it, There's going to be explanation, and then there's going to be application to how do we walk in light of what he's just said. And what I want you thinking in your mind is if we were to begin walking out, even just starting with the eight Beatitudes, can you you imagine the profound change? I mean, to be blessed are the poor in spirit, and I'll explain that, but, but the truly humble people. I mean, pride is fundamentally a struggle for every church. But, but blessed are the, are the humble, 
Blessed are those who mourn over sin. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it really sets a goal that is glorious for us. So let's look at this beatitude. Explain the first two verses. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, what does this mean, poor in spirit? And sadly, few understand it. Some understand it superficially, and most don't understand it at all. Now, some want to think that this is just speaking about financial poverty. In fact, the whole Roman Catholic tradition of priests taking a vow of poverty will look at this first, thinking that to be financially poor is to be spiritually rich. Sadly, it's not true. In fact, some of those who are financially poor struggle the most with materialism and envy. So it doesn't speak about financial poverty, nor is poverty of spirit speaking of the one who just puts himself below all of his peers. The guy with humble beginnings, the guy that, well, you know, they're just smarter than I am and they're just better than I am. But he humbles himself and says, well, I'm not as, I'm not as intelligent, as effective as my peers. I don't think he's speaking about that. Nor do I think he's speaking about this self-deprecating person, the one that always wants to tell you how bad they are at everything. Well, I'm not very smart and I don't do this very well. And I, I remember having dinner with a, a man, Carol and I, and this guy, just everything he touched to, frankly, was gold. And he talked about how he really didn't know how to do much of the yard work. And the yard was like, it was an English garden. And then he cooked dinner, and he didn't really know how to cook that well. And I'm thinking, I couldn't afford to buy this anywhere. And, and so, but, but so self-deprecating that it was just false humility. I don't think he's speaking about that. I also don't think he's speaking about those who are more melancholic in spirit, or maybe more serious or somber. You know, some people want to see, you know, the character Eeyore of Winnie the Pooh, that downcast donkey. You know, he's a poster child for this. And and I don't think that's the case. To be poor in spirit doesn't mean that you're just walking around, you know, things are going bad. You you don't walk around that way, even if that's part of your predisposition. So what does he mean by this? Well, blessed are... Well, in the Old Testament, which we always want to go to, to begin with, to get our definitions for words, because all the New Testament writers are looking at the Old Testament. So to be poor in the Old Testament wasn't necessarily a financial issue. It was to be unable. It was to be... to have an inability to do something. So so the poor in the Old Testament would be a person that is at their end. They don't have the resources to extricate themselves from a situation. And so they cry out to God. That's what we see in Psalm 34. He says, the poor man called... And the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. His troubles maybe weren't financial at all. It's speaking about oftentimes the children in exile. So the children of Israel and Babylon, they were considered poor. They couldn't get themselves out of exile into the kingdom. And so they were considered poor. See, I think what Jesus is driving at here is to be poor in spirit, is to recognize my utter inability to present myself rightly to God. In other words, it's the heart that is absent of pride and self-assurance over my deeds and and my virtuous acts and my accomplishments and my successes. In other words, the poor in spirit is the one who does not feel he is able to impress God by his theology or by his life. It is the one who sees his utter worthiness when standing before God. Do you understand that? To be poverty of spirit, to be poor in spirit, is to recognize that you bring nothing to the table when you hold yourself before God. Now, you see these men in Scripture. Moses, you see it in David, you see it in Isaiah. But what I find best, for me, is really Paul. 
Paul speaks in Philippians chapter 3. He's kind of showing this detail of all his fleshly accomplishments. Now, mind you, they're religious. So he's not talking about his job and his pension. He's talking about his religiosity. Listen to what he writes. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, the people of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So you see this Paul looking at all his religious badges and says, they're trash to me now when I see Jesus Christ. It's a poverty of spirit. John Calvin, the great reformer of Geneva, writes this. He says, he who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. Or Charles Spurgeon The English London preacher of the 19th century says, Be content to be nothing, for that's what you are. When your own emptiness is painfully forced upon your consciousness, chide yourself that you ever dreamed of being full except in the Lord. Now, folks, this flies directly in the face of the way you're raised and your innate natural being. I mean, the idea is that we are taught, we desire self-sufficiency, self-reliance, we, within our children, within ourselves, promote self-worth and self-esteem. I mean, you know what we would say if we wrote the Beatitudes, blessed are the successful, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the poor, or, excuse me, the proud, and blessed are the rich. That's the way we look at Beatitudes. This is totally inverted from that. In fact, John Adams, our second president, in David McCullough's book, biography, wrote this. This is what Adams wrote studying human nature. He says, I believe there is no one principle which predominates in human nature so much in every stage of life, from the cradle to grave, in males and females, old and young, black and white, rich and poor, high and low, as this passion for superiority over one another. We struggle coming to the table, recognizing our vast poverty. In fact, uh, David Wells, a professor of mine, wrote in his book, Courage to be Protestant. You know how we have this, over the years we've, it's grown, but this desire to promote self-worth and self-esteem in our children. You know, that everybody gets a trophy at the end of the season. Everybody's unique, which is contradictory, right? Everybody's unique. And it wasn't just from Barney. It was promoted by us, parents. Well, here's what he writes. In one college board survey... They did a survey of one million American students. This is classic. Only 2% rated themselves below average in leadership ability. When it came to getting along with others, 0% rated themselves below average. Now, you don't have to be a mathematician to realize this doesn't work. 60% rated themselves in the top 10%, and 25% of American teens, in in their ability to get along, rated themselves in the top 1%. That is profound. So we have been effective at promoting within our kids this unrealistic idea that they are little gods. 
this works against any idea of poverty of spirit. And this has bled into the church. I mean, the church, uh, very few in the church speak of their spiritual condition in the language of poverty. Generally, we speak about our condition, about what we have done right or what we have avoided wrong. So, well, I, I have been faithful to my wife. I, I, have, I do read my Bible. I, I do go to church. Or I haven't committed adultery. I haven't killed anybody. And, and we define ourselves and, and, and look at our spiritual condition upon what we have done or have not done that would put us in good stead with God. Now, when you want to use yourself or you want to use some other basis of comparison, of course you're going to look good. Now, now I'll just share something, and I, I risk, I can't imagine what you'll think about me after I share this with you, but I did about eight years ago, and, and the feedback wasn't too terrible, but in high school. So I was a senior, and it was at that age where uh, the girls were trying to break into all the boys' sports. And so I thought, well, one good turn deserves another. I will register for a girls' sport, <laughs> which I did, girls' gym. And the administration balked, and I said, hold it now. I mean, you're letting the girls in, got to let the boys in. And they did. And so that semester, I played basketball, softball, and volleyball, and I was really good. <laughs> basketball, never more blocked shots, rebounds, points scored. Softball, home runs, runs, runs batted in. I led all the charts. Volleyball, they were cowering at one point. When I compare myself, I walked off the court every day feeling, whoa, you're good. Of course, then I'd go play with the guys my size and my age, and it looked a, a whole lot different. But when you compare yourself or when you, when you hold yourself to other people, you can always pick people that make you feel good. But when you compare yourself to the holiness of God, what do you bring? Is he impressed with you? I mean, does he owe you something because of all that you've done? I mean, here's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A true Christian, a true man or woman who has been saved, is shocked that God would love and accept them. A non-Christian is shocked that God wouldn't accept them. That's a huge distinction between the two. See, poverty of spirit is essential for your salvation. You cannot enter the kingdom of God without being poor in spirit. It is that significant. You cannot do it. In fact, Jesus says this in his parable in the Gospel of Luke. Let me read it to you. He says, To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Here he goes to the things that he does. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast, which is a sign of repentance and mourning, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, this is Jesus now, this is Jesus' review of these two men. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, that is the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, 
the tax collector went home justified, innocent before God. He had nothing to bring. Here's another passage, and I'd like you to hang with me on this because it's a challenging passage. In Matthew 15, if you've ever read it, it's about the Samaritan woman that comes to Jesus to ask him to heal her daughter. And here's what Jesus says. He did not answer her a word. He didn't respond to her. The disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered to her, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, Jesus is picking up the rhetoric of the day that the Israelites, and I think Nick even shared this uh, last week regarding Jonah, they had forgotten they were the light to the world. And so they saw themselves as uniquely blessed of God, and they didn't feel a need to share with the Gentiles the glorious news of God. And so he is picking up that rhetoric, and he's going to use it as a teaching point. He said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He's calling her a dog. The word would be Gentile. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So she is saying, I'm a dog. I have got nothing. I've got nothing, but I have need. And to Jesus, he says, O woman, great is your faith. I think it's the only place where Jesus speaks to the value of someone's faith, the greatness of someone's faith. In other words, to be poor in spirit is to truly recognize our absolute poverty of anything that we could bring. We are destitute in and of ourselves before God and to come absolutely with nothing. And and this is what Jesus preached. If you remember in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, when he began to preach the first recorded sermon in Luke, he draws from Isaiah and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. In other words, those who are hearing the good news are those who are poor. Do you understand your poverty? That he's proclaiming sight to the blind. Do you see yourself as morally blind? Isn't it hard to see ourselves that way? Do you see yourselves as oppressed Needing deliverance? Do you see yourselves as a captive to your own selfish desires, needing to be redeemed? That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's what it means to be blessed. In fact, that is the blessed life. And here's where we live in an upside-down kingdom. If you get that, then you're going to be happy. Then you're going to be blessed. Then you're going to be encouraged. And, and, And by the way, blessed doesn't mean happy. Happy is a bad translation. And some of your Bibles have that. To be blessed means to be favored of God. In other words, it means that God has determined you to be approved. So when we bless God, we are approving him. When God blesses us, he is approving of us. In other words, to be blessed, the word blessed means that God, you are in a privileged position of receiving divine favor where you are in a position to be envied. In fact, in Isaiah 66, he writes this, He says, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. This is the one I esteem. God esteems the one who is humble 
and contrite in spirit. Now, of course, this blessing is more than God's approval. It's also God drawing us into the kingdom. That's what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's a present tense. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, when you are such poor in spirit, God gives you the kingdom. Isn't it amazing? To be spiritually bankrupt is to be eternally rich. And yours is the kingdom. When he says yours is the kingdom, he's talking about the forgiveness of God, the adoption of God the fellowship with all the saints, and hundreds of other blessings that God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll persevere you to the end. All these are the blessings of being in God's kingdom. And they're all yours as we're humble. But not just the present, uh, the present tense blessings, but future blessings. If you notice, in the first beatitude and the eighth beatitude, they end the same. They're both present tense, and they end with yours is the kingdom of heaven. But all the middle Beatitudes are in the future tense. So what is it? Is it present or future? Well, yes. There's present-day blessings and there's future blessings. In other words, that this promise to you that yours is the kingdom of heaven is to excite you for that which lays ahead in the next world where God is going to complete and restore all things. He's going to redeem. He's going to reverse all wrong and make it right. And this is to be... For us, a theodicy. In other words, what a theodicy is, is it's an understanding of how goodness and evil work together. That that the reality of the future blessings of the heaven are to enable me to survive the present struggles of this life. So it's a both. Yours is, yours will be the kingdom of heaven. So really the stopping point here is simply this. That for the Christian, you are identified by being poor in spirit. You are identified, your poverty of spirit is evidenced in your prayer life. Do you pray? The proud don't need to pray. They have all the resources they need. The humble pray. You know, do you find yourself repenting and forsaking sin? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you see yourself in massive need of Christ? That's evidenced by the Christian. In fact, you know, we, we, the old hymn, Rock of Ages, would this be true of you? at least in part. Top Lady wrote this song. He says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the idea of the Christian. Such poverty of spirit. Now, now the, the non-Christian, whether it be... if agnosticism or atheism or just religiosity many of you are religious and that is your bulwark of trusting that god will accept you and and if you're trusting in those things that you have done or uh, the people that you know or the accomplishments that you had you would not be in the kingdom of god and so the warning is blessed are those who are poor in spirit now for the christian who is and for that person The call is to believe in the gospel, to recognize that you bring nothing to the table, to repent of your sins and seek God for salvation. Whether you pray or you ask God or you come forward or you speak to one of us, it's fine with me. Just turning to God by faith, trusting that he will deliver you. Understanding, God has to open your eyes to it, but you respond to that by believing. Now, now let me speak to the Christian for a minute because the reality of it is that this poverty of spirit doesn't just start when you're a believer. So when you come to faith in Christ, 
you realize your absolute poverty of spirit, and then you enter the kingdom of God. But it remains that way for you. We're always living being poor in spirit. I'm, we're still poor in spirit. If you've been in the faith 50 years, you're still to be reflective of how, what poverty you have of spirit. This isn't a down thing. As we've seen, Jesus expects us to be blessed through this. But this is how we sanctify. This is how we grow in holiness. And so let me just speak to you about cultivating this kind of humility. How, how, do, we, how do we walk in this blessedness? And I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to ask you to consider some truths, and I'm going to ask you to consider some actions. And I'm going to post this on the website, so if you don't get the details of it and you want to know what I've said, then you can look there. I just want you to think with me here for a minute. <clears throat> some truths to consider. First, to develop this humility, because the Scripture tells us to humble ourselves. The Scripture tells us to clothe ourselves with humility. So how do we do it? Because for me, I'm always struggling with some degree of defensiveness or self-promotion or why I'm right in a situation. So it's a constant battle for me to cultivate humility. Here are some ways. Two things. Number one, just consider these truths. The greatness of God in his self-existence. That you would take time to think about God being self-existent. There is no other that exists by themselves. That, that everyone here is contingent upon God. That, that, that God has created all things. He has created all things for himself. That, that you are not independent. You are absolutely contingent for breath, for life, for everything. He is the only non... You can ask yourself every day, what do I have that I didn't receive? In other words, allow yourself to be overwhelmed by a self-existent God and you being a contingent person. You are absolutely contingent for the very breath you draw. Your life rests in his extension of grace. You are that weak. Let that humble you. If you're tempted to think, I'm getting independent, I'm cutting off, I'm, I'm on my own now, humble yourself with the self-existence of God. Consider this truth. The power of God. So if you're tempted to think you've got it all working and you're really at the height, then think about the power of God, that with his word, he created the stars. And, and the massive stars, this expanding solar system that we see. And, and at the same time, he created the unique microscopic DNA that is part of every one of us. And you cannot add an inch to your height. You cannot make your hair change color permanently. <clears throat> and you cannot add an hour to your life. Do you realize how small we are? Go on the web. Go see the pictures from the Hubble telescope. I mean, watch how it just traces out so that this earth, which is our home, becomes microscopic and in short comparison to the rest of what God has created. Uh, consider this truth, the actual holiness of God in salvation. So if you think, hey, I'm really getting better, I'm really moving in holiness, and <clears throat> I'm really seeing myself kind of stand above my peers in terms of how holy I am. And consider that it, was, that it required God to sacrifice the Son for our sins. I mean, think through. It demanded a divine Son to be my substitute and surety to be saved. I mean, humble yourself under what it took God to do to bring about salvation to us. 
Or consider this truth, the very mercy of God in saving you. If you're tempted to look down on the non-Christian, if you're tempted to look down on the pagan who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, and how could they be so stupid and foolish to not believe in the greatness of God when it's all around them? If you're tempted to think that way, <clears throat> then consider this, that you didn't seek God, he sought you. The scripture's clear. No one seeks God, no, not one. None are righteous. All of their throats are open graves. God has sought you with grace and he's saved you. He's persevered you with grace. He's going to glorify you in grace when you see Christ face to face. Humble yourself thinking through that I have been delivered, not because I pulled myself halfway up the rope, but he came down and delivered me. And and, and then last, consider the truth of your mortality. If you're tempted again to feel strong and and, uh, you're at a place where you're just thinking about the year ahead and and you're feeling confident in how well things are going at work and how important you are and how, how critical you are to the company's functioning and all these various things, just consider your own mortality. You know, pray in Psalm 39, 5, he says, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. I mean, Charles de Gaulle, the famous French uh, statesman and general, you've heard him, I'm sure, that the graveyards are filled with indispensable men. You're filled with it. Remind yourself. Someone's going to replace you. They're going to sit in your seat. When my brother's at Westinghouse, man next to him had a heart attack, died within a week. Chairs occupied. Jobs carrying on. It's humbling to know that you're not indispensable, but it's healthy for us. So those are the truths that I'd have you think about. Okay, the actions that I would have you to consider. Uh, These are important. That the poor in spirit are going to practice repentance daily. In other words, you're going to think through your life and you're going to think through the struggle you have with your besetting sins. You're going to be like Paul who says, I do that which I don't want to do and I don't do that which I ought to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. It led him to a place of humility. That the poverty of spirit, the one who enjoys poverty of spirit, confesses to God and to one another. That, that you would confess, men, that you look through your life, you look through your marriage, you look through your home, you look through your work, and you say, have I walked in a manner worthy of the gospel? No, I have not. And so I'm going to repent to God, and I'm going to repent to those that I've sinned against. Same for women, for children. I mean, that you do that. See, the proud do not confess sin. The proud point sin out in others. They criticize others, but they don't confess their sin. And number two, I would ask you to practice giving God thanks for the good that you do. I mean, many of you are very active. You're doing very well in ministry. But give verbal thanks to God for that. I mean, that's, I think, what James is driving at when he says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, that we can actually thank God for these things. So when God uses you, praise God. That's it. Praise God. See, the proud are not grateful. The proud don't think to give gratitude to God. They wait for gratitude to be expressed to them and all that they've done. And they want to be appreciated for how much they've sacrificed. But the poor in spirit don't. They just thank God for that. I would ask you thirdly, to practice thinking less of your opinions. The way that we, the poor in spirit, holds his opinions very lightly. I'm talking about the way we understand politics, uh, the way we understand church music, 
the way we look at parenting and philosophies of parenting or education of our children or what is proper entertainment or dress. I would ask you to think less of your opinions. You know, Paul says in Romans 12, 3, he says, don't think so highly of yourself. They obviously were. He says, think of yourself with sober judgment. Be less committed to the opinions you hold. Now, what I mean by that is I'm speaking about those issues that the Scripture may speak to in principle form, but not directly. And hold your opinions. That's fine. But hold them in a way that's light, that, that isn't used. When I, when I hear people take their philosophies on whatever the topic and, and apply it to another person's life as if that must be their philosophy, that's just legalism. See, the proud hold their opinions very strongly, and they want to vocalize them, and they want other people to like them and their opinions. And, it, and, and the poor in spirit don't do that. They live the way they live, and if people follow it and see it and find value in it, great. But if they don't, that's fine. Uh, fourth, I would have you practice seeking correction from others. That, that, that you, would, you would ask your spouse, you, you would ask an older child, you would ask a Christian friend, what inconsistencies do you see in me? And Carol and I asked each other this last night. That's why we didn't get to sleep. <laughs> we were up all night talking about it. But, but ask, what inconsistency, what do you see dad or mom most passionate about? I, I, I think about, um, in, if you're in a care group, a small group, cultivating an environment where we can offer correction to one another. See, the proud do not ask for correction. They don't submit themselves and their lives unto another. And then just two more. I would ask you to consider uh, to seek to serve. Practice serving. Do things beneath you. Do things that you don't think you really should do. It's very humbling. It cultivates humility. I don't know what that will be for you. But, but this idea of, you know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, it's amazing. He says, consider me as a servant. Who would say that here? I mean, consider me as a servant of Christ. So, so do that's the thing that the pride, the proud don't serve. They, they think they ought to be served. Can you imagine the metamorphosis of this place if we began doing these things? You would find no other community group in the world that would evidence such humility as the church ought to. And then last, I would ask you to seek to be verbally and publicly encouraging of other people in the grace of God that you see in them. That deepens humility in us. When I can publicly testify, or you can testify, to the grace of God in someone's life, to others, you're worshiping God by reflecting on his grace in their life. You're encouraging the brother or sister of how God has used them. But it deepens the humility and your need for them. The proud, by the way, don't encourage others publicly. They wait to be encouraged. So it, it's a profound beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have nothing to bring to God. Isn't that like God? Blessed are you when you've got nothing because he's got it all. He just wants you to recognize it. Yours is the kingdom. So you come with nothing Except mercy, except need and sin, and he gives you the kingdom. That's the kind of God.
that we worship. A God where you have nothing, but he gives you all that you need. Would you join with me in in prayer? And and, and by the way, I I just want to remind you, this is so essential. This beatitude, it's going to cast its shadow on the rest of the beatitudes. And, And if we don't get this down, we won't get the next seven, and you won't finish well in life. Let me just remind you about William Carey. And William Carey was, of course, the, the British missionary to India, lived there and worked for 40 years, uh, buried all of his friends, his wife, and, and yet ministered and translated the Bible into six different languages and parts of it into 29 other languages. And, and just, just a man that was used mightily of God. Do you know what he had put on his tombstone? This is what he had put. It says this, William Carey, Born August 17th, 1761, died June 9th, 1834. A wretched, poor, helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. He carried the humility of spirit until the end. And that's why he was so successful in God's eyes and now in ours. So let me initiate prayer for us. And, and this time of prayer it is to be reflecting the word. So, so we would ask you to pray briefly so that others can pray. We ask you to pray loudly so we can join, hear it and join with you. And we also ask you to pray corporately. Think in your prayers of, of your life in the context of the church and respond in, in that manner. And uh, it can be uh, a word of thanks, a petition for grace. Let me start and then um, my brother's going to pray. Close us. Uh, Father, thank you for this word. Uh, Lord, I trust that your spirit will apply uh, perfectly to the hearts of these men and women and students as uh, would bring you the greatest glory, but also them their greatest joy. I pray this in the name of Jesus.